Amen. If you will, open your Bibles once again to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. And we'll begin reading in verse 16 in just uh, a moment, and we'll be reading uh, through verse 40. Uh, as you're doing that, uh, a little bit of a uh, programming note, uh, don't uh, wipe your glasses off, don't adjust your televisions, don't adjust your computer screen. Yes, there's something wrong with my face. And um, I know many of you would have said that months and months and years and years ago. Uh, but uh, I am undergoing a, a treatment uh, by a dermatologist uh, where you rub cream on your face and it takes off uh, two or three layers of skin. And uh, it's somewhere between irritating and miserable. I will put it that way. And so um, uh, Wednesday night, I, I really we were in 2 Corinthians. I didn't have the opportunity to preach on chapter 3, verse 12, and following where Moses covered his face with a veil uh, because of the reflection of uh, having experienced the Shekinah glory in the tent of meeting. Uh, probably by next week, I will need to preach on leprosy in that uh, uh, I will be looking like that as my face continues to fall off my face. So uh, that, that's the, the deal. Uh, I have no, it, it hurts to shave, it hurts to eat, it hurts to talk until your mouth kind of loosens up a little bit. And so, uh, uh, no, the beard will not be staying. Uh, uh, I have a beard that I don't even think a 15-year-old would be proud of. So, uh, uh, but it just hurts to shave right now. And so, uh, at any rate, it's all good. This season will uh, pass. Uh, just a, another aside as a bit of a programming note. Uh, we're in the midst of a devotional series that I call From Unbelief to Belief. And it's a very intentionally done series. And I've had the opportunity to recommend it to two different individuals here uh, recently. Just uh, uh, they, they had questions uh, about the gospel, about salvation, and were interested in Bible study and so forth. And so I would commend that to you. They pop up, uh, I think, around 5 o'clock every morning. Uh, you, you can get it on Facebook. You can get it on podcast. You can go to the website and get it. There's all kinds of different ways to get those things. But I'm just trying to look at basic issues uh, that uh, are pertinent uh, to the gospel, pertinent to salvation, and uh, they're designed for the believer uh, to kind of uh, strengthen uh, your faith uh, and also to prepare you uh, to speak to those uh, that may be uh, in your circle of influence, to speak to them uh, about the gospel, to answer questions that, uh, that they may have. Uh, for you to even say, you know what, uh, there's a series that you could listen to that might help you uh, in, in a journey uh, toward a, a commitment and, and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. So take advantage of, of those uh, if, you, if you will. As we get into this section of the book of Acts, the second from chapter 16, the, the second uh, look at this initial uh, missionary uh, endeavor into continental uh, Europe, it would seem uh, obvious uh, from what's going to happen and what has happened to the Apostle Paul, uh, what Jesus has said to us, uh, what the epistles continue to emphasize for us. That to be called to salvation, uh, to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, is a call to conflict. We're in a spiritual battle right now. Uh, there, there's so many dimensions of the spiritual battle. Uh, for, for the believer, uh, every moment of every day, there's the reality of uh, the, the war of your flesh against the Spirit that takes place within uh, your, your own life. Uh, uh, probably, particularly those of you that are parents of young children, uh, there, there was a, a conflict, and I'm not trying to be funny, that, that, that so many times you just want to throw up your hand and say, I quit, I, I'm just going to stay home today. Uh, uh, and, and maybe for those of you that are empty nesters, maybe, maybe that bed felt really nice and comfortable this morning, and you just uh, lie there and think, you know, I can just stay home today. There's always a spiritual battle, and sometimes that spiritual battle is external to us, uh, within the church and, and within the culture. Uh, that is, uh, we're, we're going to be uh, 
assaulted. We're going to be afflicted. We're going to be indicted uh, because of what we believe. And as I have noted a number of times, as the the distance uh, between biblical Christianity and the condition of our culture, the, the presuppositions, the attitudes, the philosophy of our culture continues to diverge away from uh, biblical thinking. Uh, we're going to be uh, in more and more conflicts. And so uh, we see uh, that as uh, Paul uh, preached the gospel, that which Jesus said was going to be the case was true, it is true, and it will be true. Jesus warned his disciples, don't think I came to bring peace on earth. I came to bring a sword. I, I came to be that which divides. The most important divide in all of human history, and it will be the most important divide all through eternity, is the divide between those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and those who don't. And so, we who know him must uh, be prepared, and we must, we must know the gospel well. We, we must be prepared to speak of it, uh, to defend it, to, to begin where people are and take them biblically where they need to be so they can come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with those things being said, let's begin our, our reading there in uh, verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. This she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. When her owners saw their, their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prisoners, the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourselves, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that had believed in God. But when it was the day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let these, those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. 
The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. And so they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. Uh, Your word is true. It has always been true. It will always be true. It will stand all of the test that men want to stack up against it. We thank you for the power of the gospel that is communicated uh, through your word. I pray that we would be found faithful. We pray that your spirit uh, would give me the ability to speak your truth and uh, that that very same spirit uh, would apply your truth to each of our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the first things that I do when I began to prepare uh, to preach a text, and usually uh, I like very, very early on Monday mornings to start getting my thoughts together for the following uh, Sunday. And so I try to, in reading the text, uh, pick up uh, break points, transition points, and come up uh, with uh, two, three, four, five categories or sections uh, that, are, that I can break the text down in so I can make it more manageable to start packing into my brain and so I can develop it uh, into uh, a sermon. And so uh, now I'm, I'm really, uh, really proud of myself. I, I get a, a Baptist A-plus today that the points of the sermon are actually alliterated, okay? Uh, I'm not a big alliterator. In fact, I, sometimes when I see these guys that are really proud of their rhymes or their alliteration or something, I think you're more interested in saying something cute and catchy than you are about communicating the truth of the text that you supposedly are attempting to preach. But it did work out this way. Uh, this way. We can talk about the encounter, the evangelism, and the exoneration today. So it's three kind of uh, episodes within the text that occur in Philippi. But so many issues that we could drill down and spend quite a bit of time. We could talk about uh, the realities of spiritual warfare and the occult, and we will talk a bit about that. Uh, We could talk about the the realities of of persecution and and suffering. Talk about that which is most important, the gospel and evangelism and conversion. Even touches on uh, something uh, to do with justice and even power and oppression and slavery. So a lot of things here for us today. We can't dig into all of them uh, equally, uh, but um, they're important. They're important issues uh, that are raised uh, as we interact uh, with this text. And to be sure, if you're going to be a faithful reader of the Bible, you have to interact with it. It's more than just a quick scan uh, across the words on a page, but it is an active engagement with the God who has revealed himself on the pages of the Bible. And so we look at this, and and let's let's talk first of all about this encounter with the slave girl. Luke recounts, notice the we uh, there in verse 16. So uh, Luke is a companion here. He's he's accompanying uh, Paul and and Silas, and uh, they brought along uh, young uh, Timothy with them. And so they're going to the place of prayer. I'm not sure if it was the Sabbath and they were going or just a daily place, if it was the place out by the river where they had first encountered Lydia. It doesn't really give us a lot of details. But while on their way, they encounter a girl who is a slave who is described as having a spirit of divination. Now, the Greek is actually the for the this translated divination in, in my translation is the Greek is pythona. Again, python, okay, of the python, so to so to speak. And so this description touches upon uh, some of the ancient myths, ancient legends. Now, again, just because he's speaking this way, he does not give credence to these myths were true. It's just the way that people spoke of these things. And so the myth is related to the Greek god Apollos, 
uh, his uh, relationship uh, to the uh, shrine at Delphi uh, and uh, there being a python uh, that uh, some accounts say Apollos killed but still was able to give a spirit of prophecy uh, to those uh, who were associated with that particular uh, shrine. And so uh, this spirit that's in her is identified as that of the python or the, the spirit of uh, divination here of saying something in regards uh, to the future. And notice there that her owners were making money off of her fortune telling. Uh, uh, she was a slave, which is a, a terrible situation in itself. She was, in a sense, twice enslaved. She was enslaved uh, to her uh, masters. And very easily could be more than two even that had maybe gone together to, to buy her with the, with the scheme to utilize her uh, for the making of money uh, at her own expense. It would be interesting to know if she was associated uh, with some of the pagan rites, pagan rituals that would have taken place in certain shrines surrounding Philippi. We're not told that. We're not told a whole lot other than uh, she would be uh, what we might describe today as she was possessed by demon. Now, I, every time we come across this, I, I say a few things broadly uh, about this phenomenon. We encounter it a number of times uh, in the Bible of individuals uh, in whom demons have come to reside and, and in a very real way have taken over uh, the bodies of that individual. And I believe that that's still something that could happen uh, today. Some people would argue, you know, that only a was uh, something that was associated with that day, but at the death and resurrection of, cross, uh, of Christ, it doesn't happen. I, I have not seen it personally. I've heard accounts uh, that I think are probably reliable of those that have had uh, a situation in which a demon has uh, possessed someone. And again, I'm, I'm equally a little bit uh, uh, cautious uh, about affirming or denying uh, whether a Christian uh, can have authority over that demon. I have heard people that I respect make the claim that they have cast out demons. Uh, and I've also heard John MacArthur say he tried to send them to Tucson and to Phoenix and to the abyss and every other place, and they didn't move an inch. So I don't know. I, I really don't. Here's what I do know. Don't mess around with them. Don't get involved. Uh, from You don't see it as much now, but I, I, you, they're still out there. Uh, but I can remember driving uh, uh, to places as a child, to Chattanooga, Tennessee, to Rome, Georgia, the other kind of you know, mid-sized cities adjacent to my hometown, and there would be a sign out in front of a, a little shop or a house, and it would say, Fortune Tellers. Now, the mo for, for, the, for the most part, it's just hogwash. It's just simple stupidity and foolishness. But I would tell you, do not open yourself up to that possibility. There's a term that I ran across about 30 years ago. In fact, Drew uh, used this, this morning in our new members class the, the term the New Age Movement. I first ran across it in a, in a, a, a fairly lengthy preaching series done by uh, the pastor known as David Jeremiah. Many of you are familiar with David Jeremiah. And he did it on the New Age Movement. And it was, I'd never heard of it. But that seems to me, for the most part, kind of the, the front uh, for the occult making its way uh, into the, to the mainstream, okay? Uh, now, I'm, I'm old enough, I remember the, the television show Bewitched, okay? And um, I watched it, okay, as, as a kid. Didn't think much about it. My parents didn't think much about it. Um, I went trick-or-treating as a child, okay? And I don't think I ever wore a devil suit, but uh, I did that. But all of these things are, are kind of uh, problematic if, if you think about it. And the idea of a, a personal devil being actually involved in people goes, uh, of course, back, goes back to Scripture. But how many have heard of uh, uh, the Faustian bargain? Anybody know what the Faustian bargain is? Again, it's a tale from the, uh, probably the Middle Ages uh, about a particular man named Faustus that agrees to sell his soul to the devil uh, for the sake of gain in uh, this world. Now, I'll tell you one popular place that this legend was played upon. You'll be shocked. But you can Google it and see the whole episode. 
And baby boomers, you can grin. There was a television show in the mid-60s called The Monkees, okay? And there was an episode of The Monkees. And years ago, I, I remembered this, and I pulled it up on YouTube, and you can see the entire episode. The Devil and Peter Tork. Let me tell you this. The crazy thing is the story makes no sense apart from a biblical worldview. And here's the thing, and this is shocking. Peter Tork did not want to go to hell. After he realized he had made this deal with the devil, he was aware that there was a real hell and he didn't want to go there. Just an interesting thing. But, but these type things are, are flowing in and out of the culture. And as I said, probably a, a loose banner would be the New Age movement, which I believe embraces things like yoga, uh, uh, transcendental meditation, Biblical meditation is to fill your mind with the thoughts of God, the thoughts of the Word of God. This Eastern mysticism is to empty your mind, okay, which is not hard for a lot of people, I admit. But uh, did everybody get that? Okay, all right. So, but all of those practices are very dangerous. Now, let me just, I've, I've got to cut through it very, very quickly because this is really not even the main point. Simple fact is, don't mess with it, okay? And I believe that this spirit of demons is absolutely infused in our culture today, okay? At every level, um, in the media, uh, there's all kinds of, you know, in television shows, all kinds of talk about spirits and things like that. And one of the, one of the crazy phenomenons and my, my, my children really watch what my grandchildren watch, okay? But occasionally I'll see something. Do you know who the bad guys are? You know, Batman used to fight bank robbers, and Marshall Dillon fought stagecoach robbers. And, you know, they were, they were crime, you know, people that, criminals that did stuff. You know who the real evil people are today? It's the people who destroy the environment. That's who the superheroes must fight against. And if you watch close enough, you'll see some kind of discussion. You'll hear them allude to a spirit, a spirit, a spirit that permeates nature. And all of that's, I believe, setting the stage uh, for what Paul calls in 2 Thessalonians 2, this, this great delusion. And here's, here's the thing for the church. As, as this stuff permeates uh, the media and education, Business, all, all, all of this, the church is in the position of being the least informed and the least discerning of any time since at least the days before the Reformation. We lack discernment as a people. We primarily lack discernment because we do not know the Word of God. Okay? You do not know the Word of God because you do not study the Word of God. You go day after day after day after day, week after week after week after week, and you have not opened your Bible, okay? And I can't pour into you in this hour on Sunday everything you need to know from the Word of God. And so you must be a student of the Word of God to recognize uh, these things. Now here, and this is where you're going to get mad at me, so I'm ready for it, okay? Y'all just be ready too. I think much of the blame for the lack of discernment and the abandonment of the study of the Scriptures comes to rest at the feet of the modern charismatic movement in which feelings were prioritized over the truth of the Word of God. That if we can just have a good shaking up, feeling, foot stomping, hand waving, slobbering all over ourselves, rolling on the floor, good time, then we've had church. And it ain't so. It ain't so. And so we must be a discerning people. And, I, and here's kind of what I think. And wh whether you're a, one of these post-mill guys, which I'm not, I think it still applies to the day in which we live, that Satan himself is at work creating a grand delusion in which people are deceived and they depart from the church. And I think the nominal church... The, the, the church that is not the true born-again church of the living God are so caught up in other things, they so lack discernment 
that they're willing to embrace all of these evil spirits and the doctrines that they promote. And that's why I say, be discerned. I, I hate, listen, I said that this, this week. I hate to be the guy that's always got my 50 caliber machine gun and I got that thing on rapid fire and I'm always unloading on somebody or something. I really am not crazy about doing that, okay? But you need to be discerning. You need to, and the only way, hear me, please, the only way you can be discerning is to know the truth. As I've told you so many times before, how do they train secret service agents to recognize counterfeit money? They make them study the real thing. You don't need to be an expert on every cult and ism in the world. You need to be an expert on the Word of God. And so, uh, you know, even in the church, whether it's Harry Potter or the zombies or the vampires, it is an unhealthy fascination with things that are of the dark. Okay? And so, please be wise, and be wise particularly about what your children are reading and listening to and watching on television because I'm telling you, it is subtle and it's worked its way in to all types of programming. And so, again, be warned. Okay, so this slave girl was being exploited for the sake of money. Notice what she was doing there in uh, verse uh, 17. She was following the missionaries around and probably at the top of her lungs shouting what was true. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. Well, we need the advertising. That's great. No harm in that. But something like what we saw in the passage we read from Luke, God is not going to allow a demon to bear witness to him. He's going to use his people to proclaim the gospel. And so this became an annoyance. Uh, to the Apostle Paul, it was probably very obnoxious. It was probably constant, probably shrieking and screeching and, and yelling, even though what she was saying was true. And when uh, Paul uh, became, notice there, greatly annoyed. See, I, I, I like to follow the Apostle Paul. To every, and I get greatly annoyed sometimes, you know. I, I know none of y'all do, but I do. Greatly annoyed. And so he ultimately turned and he commanded the demon to come out. As I say, whether or not you can command demons or not, we'll leave it as an open question. I hope you don't ever feel the need to do that. But at any rate, uh, that's what happened. She was delivered uh, from the demonic uh, spirit. And that set off uh, the, her owners. Now, I will say this. I do find it interesting. There's no mention as to whether or not she was converted or not. Now, there's a warning found uh, in the Gospels where Jesus said, hey, if, if this demon is, is cast out, but again, you do not fully come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are going to be seven demons that come back and inhabit the same person. So I don't know. The Scriptures are silent. We must be silent. Uh, but prayerfully, uh, she uh, was uh, actually uh, converted. But this incensed her owners, okay, and because they were making money. And they were obsessed with that. And so they reacted by grabbing Paul and Silas and dragging them uh, before the rulers. Now, just one side point. Look at verse 19. You see that word dragged there? That is the very same word used in John 6, 44 and John 6, 65 when it says, No man comes to the Father... No man comes to me except the Father Elko. Elko. Usually translated as draw. And so, you, and you get this whole thing sometimes. Well, the Holy Spirit must woo and coax and blah, blah, blah. Well, maybe. But most of the time when this word is used, it comes out as a superior force overcoming an inferior force, and taking it to the place that the superior force wants it to be. And my God is the superior one who saves that as He chooses to do. He drags us out of our sin and our death and our rebellion to the place of salvation because you ain't going on your own. I promise you that. That's just a sidelight, but it was fun. All right. 
So they bring the missionaries before the magistrates. Notice the indictment there in verse 21. A little background there. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans. This probably occurred 4950 A.D. Claudius the emperor had established or, or uh, issued an edict that banned Jews from Rome. He threw all of the Jews out of Rome, possibly because of their association, the Jewish Christians, with this person referred to as Crestus. Okay? But they were, they were banned, and so this is probably an allusion to this, uh, this ban on uh, Jews. So these men are Jews, and they shouldn't be here, and they're creating trouble, and they're advocating things that cost us a whole bundle of money. Probably is. The bottom line is always the bottom line. As Deep Throat said, what? Follow the money. Follow the money. So they were unhappy about this. Their response is they drug them into the marketplace, uh, bring them uh, before the, the magistrates, and they beat them with rods. My understanding is this was actually typically not just a, like a broom handle type rod, but uh, a, a band or a rods banded together and probably had a whippiness to it, and they, they beat them severely. Paul would later write that this had happened to him three times. And so uh, they were beaten, uh, they were bruised, and they were bloody, and they threw them into prison, and the jailer was ordered to keep them safely. And this, just so we get some insight into this jailer, because he's going to be figure prominently here in just a minute, because of the command to make sure they don't get away, he put them in stocks. And this was a miserable experience in which they were stretched and concorded, and their wrists and their ankles were strapped into place, and they were in this incredibly physically painful uh, situation. And they were there because God called them to Europe. Now, I know how we would be. We'd be whining. Well, I, must, I must have not understood God. I, this can't be right. I'm, I'm suffering. Notice what they do here as we look at this evangelism of the jailer, beginning there in verse 25. They're in prison. They're not only in prison, they're in the innermost area of the prison. Not only are they in prison in the innermost area, but they're in stocks. They're in misery. And they were praying and singing hymns to God. They weren't whining. They weren't belly aching. They weren't questioning God. We never should have came to Europe. We should have stayed over. No. They're praising God, and guess what? In the midst of their praise, the other prisoners were listening. In the midst of their sorrow, which is directly related to their faithfulness, they're having an impact on others. Folks, whatever season of affliction that you're in, there is a world watching to see if you will praise your God in the dark, in the storm. God may have brought you to that very situation in His sovereign providence for the sake of demonstrating the undergirding, the overarching, the superior power of the grace of God. I think one lesson, if I could learn it, if you want to, turn in, turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, just real quick. Philippians chapter 4. I preach from this text on thanksgiving. Philippians 4.4. 4. Now, I like to say of myself, you may not think it's true. And you can tell me so. But I try not to be a critical person. I try not to be a complainer. Uh, I rarely complain about the food in the restaurant. I rarely complain about the service. I rarely complain about the lines at Walmart. For the most part. I'm not saying never. I'm just, I just try not to be a whiner and a complainer. That's just, you know, because I don't like to hear it, and I don't like to do it, okay? But internally, I'm a complainer, and I'm a whiner. I'm just all the time just wrestling and grinding my teeth and just fighting within myself what I'm not doing. Look at verse 4. Is rejoicing in the Lord always. If I, if I could just master that principle, 
If I could just master that principle, that I am here not by accident, but by design. And God has placed me here for His purpose, and it is a good purpose. It is a glorious purpose, and He is going to be glorified no matter my circumstances. So suck it up. Not only suck it up, quit whining. Even if you don't verbalize that whine, rejoice deep within the wells of your soul so that you may rejoice before men and they may know that what you say about your God is true and it's real. And as Paul says, and again, Tim Evans, I say to you in each and every circumstance, in each and every day, rejoice. If you'll remember, I've pointed out, and the contrast is that we not be anxious. That we, whether it's the knotheads at the controls of our government, whether it's the knotheads in the Ukraine, in Russia, where, wherever the knotheads are on your job, in your home, wherever the knuckleheads are, don't be anxious. Rejoice in the Lord because He is faithful. Thank you. Thought I was going to have to stand here all day. All right. So, they are listening. And so, for the third time in the course of this book, there's a miraculous deliverance. A different way of delivering, but miraculous nonetheless, that a great earthquake shook the foundations, and the doors were thrown open, and the, the bonds were unfastened, okay? Now, I don't know if it just shook the jail or just the whole city, or the, I don't know, the text doesn't tell us. There might be a connection that the magistrates may have connected the earthquake with the jailbirds, I don't know. And that's why, would you leave town? It would be a good thing if you just left. Not sure, don't know, doesn't matter. What we do know, whether, uh, and, and again, whether it was just, you know, in the course of nature, in, in the course of providence, the earthquake came, or whether it was just absolutely God choosing to send one. He had determined before all worlds were created that on that particular place, at that particular time, there was going to be an earthquake and that his proclaimers, his preachers were going to be in jail and that earthquake would deliver them from their bondage. Okay? You know, not all providence is miraculous. Sometimes it's just kind of the normal way God superintends all things. But all miracles are within the providence of God. It's a part of what he's doing in the world. And so they were released. We're told in verse 27 that the jailer awakes. This hardened, grizzled man that was so insensitive, he could take these bloodied and beaten men, drag them into the deepest, darkest areas of the jail, and put them in these terrible bonds to suffer their time away. Okay? And so he comes in, and he's fearful. He knows that there's been an earthquake. He's aware the prison doors are open, and he's ready to kill himself. Why? Because his, his life was the surety that these men would be kept in jail. That is, if you lose these men, you lose your life. And so he, he thought he was a dead man. Okay? And so Paul calls out, to the jailer, as he gets the way lit, he comes in and he asks that great question. Verse 30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, a lot of you real purists out there would probably say something along the lines, Oh foolish one, there's nothing you can do to be saved. It's the sovereign work of God. And probably even that the Holy Spirit erred in, in, in right, right, wrong. Very simple, straightforward answer. The answer Luther discovered in Romans 1, 16, 17, that the just shall live by faith. That is, how is it that we may have our sins forgiven? How is it we may know we have eternal life? It is through faith and faith alone in Christ alone, okay? It is a resolute commitment to the Lordship of Christ and the deepest of convictions that what He did on the cross is sufficient 
for my salvation. That there is nothing else that I can do. There is nothing else that I must do. That I am resting in the finished work of Christ. Now, we've said a lot. I've used this phrase repeatedly. The person and work of Christ. The person and work of Christ. The person and work of Christ. Why? Because the person and work of Christ is essential. It's important. In a sense, that is the gospel. That this person, the second person of the Trinity, took on humanity to come into our world and do a work. A work that we could not do. The work of pleasing our Heavenly Father. The work of dying in our place. You, they, they go together. They have to go together. If, if somebody else had suffered on a cross, it would not matter because he was not the perfect substitute. He was not the perfect Lamb of God. He was not the righteous one who suffered and died for us. And so we must believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is and he did what he said he would do and it applies in the way the Bible says that it applies. I rest my case before God in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I've told you this many times before. I'm going to tell you this again because you don't remember that I tell you this all the time. But you need to remember this. Okay? Everybody listening. Even the Roman Catholics get the person and work of Christ right. As much as they blow everything, if you look at their theology, for the most part, they'll tell you who Jesus is and they'll tell you what he did. But they, like so many Baptists and other evangelicals, they mess it up at the point at which they call for people to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I will suggest to you, biblically speaking, it's kind of confusing. I spent 50 years in the world, well, not 50 years, I've spent 20, 50 years working on it, 20 years writhing in agony over what it means to actually believe and be saved. Because as you survey the biblical testimony, we see the sim a similar question on the day of Pentecost. They asked Peter after preaching the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, what must we do to be saved? What did he say? He didn't even mention faith. He said, repent and be baptized. That's where certain groups, kind of that's their uh, proof text for you must be baptized in even order to be a Christian. That's how you're, that's how you're saved is going through the waters of, of baptism. When the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and asks him roughly the same question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus didn't say a word about believing. He said, you need to go sell everything you got. Give it to the poor and come follow me. Nicodemus comes to him in the midst of uh, the night. And he goes, what? You must be born again? Jesus said in Matthew 18, except you be converted and become as little children. You must be converted. So we've got all of these, these words in, in, in the Bible that help to define what the response is to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think this is where those that write systematic theologies can help us. In that they put kind of into an order what happens in the life of the person who is ultimately converted and helps us see what it means to believe. I mean, the Bible goes on to say in the book of James, the demons believe. They're not saved. Now, do we have contradictions in scriptures? Are the biblical writers in, in collusion with the Holy Spirit? Are they just trying to make things difficult for us? Well, I don't, obviously they're, they're not. But at least in my mind, I had a terrible, terrible time with it for a lot, a lot of years. Okay? Now, there's, there's a simple test, and then I'm going to get complex for a minute. And that is, if you are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the character of your life, the fruit of your life, is consistent with that which the Bible defines as being a part of believing, you're saved. You're saved. Isn't that simple? That's so easy. That, that, now, if, you, if your testimony is, well, all I got is what I did you know, 50 years ago or 20 years ago or yesterday, it doesn't matter. You're on pretty shaky ground, actually. If all you got is your decision, but you must be born again. 
And that's why I say to you so many times, and this is, this is not the majority position in the Southern Baptist Convention, I will assure you, as, as I said, I would be asked to leave most Baptist churches for saying this. But regeneration, the new birth, is the cause of your believing. And not believing that, and not embracing that theology in your methodology is why we have such a mess in most evangelical churches in our country. And that is that God so works, He drags you out of your sin and death to come to a place that all you can do is rest in Christ. I have no other place to go. I have nothing else I can do. I catch myself at the foot of the cross knowing that in Him I have everything I need for my eternal salvation. And it seems like much of what our struggling is, at least in my own life, is you chase the dog's tail, and you chase the dog's tail, and you try to figure it out, and you try to figure it out, and maybe the point is you get so exhausted running around in circles that you collapse at the foot of the cross, and all you can say is, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Right? And so, yes, indeed, there's a certain amount of knowledge. I can't even tell you exactly how much you got to know. Okay? Uh, that, that's always a, oh, that's a fun discussion for me, okay? But I'm not even going to get into it. But you must recognize the reality of your sin, the certainty of your condemnation, and that there's one remedy, and His name is Jesus Christ. If you have claimed Him, then your life, has been forever changed. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do in order to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus. The singular, the unique, the one of a kind sacrifice for our salvation. And so we see again that the jailer um, responded in good works, consistent with what Paul would write in Ephesians 2. That, uh, again, we're saved unto uh, good works. He takes them out of the jail. He washes their wounds. He, and then they're baptized. The, the, the gospel is preached to his family. And uh, the, the family that believed uh, is baptized. And, and they rejoice together in the Lord. And then they're taken back uh, to the prison. And the next morning, they get word for the magistrates. So let's look at this very quickly, the exoneration by the magistrates. They sent word to the jailer, let these guys go. Get rid of them. We don't want to deal with them anymore. Now, interesting thing, verse 37. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. That's illegal. You can't do that. They had Like we have rights as citizens, we talk about some. They had certain rights. We're going to see it later in the book of Acts. And there's a sense where Paul is demanding justice. Not justice just for his own sake. Justice for the sake of those who will follow. Justice for the sake of the proclamation of the gospel. And this is where sometimes the Bible requires discernment. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 7, he says to those Corinthians who are suing each other, why not just allow yourself to be wronged? Why not just go quietly? They said we could go, let's just get out of here. We've had enough of this. But he wants the, the, the gospel and those who proclaim it to be vindicated and validated at some level by these civil authorities. And so he demands his rights as a citizen. And so they, they come and they acknowledge that. They apologized to them. But guess what? They still ask them to leave. And so, when do you go? When do you leave? Should they have stayed? Should they have gone? Should, should they have just not even gone through this? Well, again, it's, I, I'm pretty sure they did exactly what the Holy Spirit was leading them to do. And so, they left the prison. They go back to the church to visit Lydia. They speak to the brothers, and they encourage them, and they go to their next 
divine appointment. They knew when it was time to come. They knew when it was time to go. And they left. They left the gospel witness. Obviously, uh, the church flourished there, as we see later in the letter to the church, that those seeds that were planted, that gospel that was proclaimed, took fruition in the lives of the people of the city of Philippi. And so we see here, once again, as I opened, we're called to conflict. It could be very mild. It could be just people get aggravated with you. It could be they just try to avoid you. But it could be the loss of your job. It could be being drawn into court, overtaking a stand over what is right and true. All kinds of things. But we are called to be faithful to the gospel and to the Savior of our gospel, no matter the conflict. We see this faithfulness on display. A faithfulness that allowed them to do what? Rejoice in the Lord always. And if you didn't hear me, and again, I say to you, rejoice. Well, what, what, what was the application of that sermon? Rejoice in the Lord always. Whether the conflict is great or this conflict is small, rejoice because our Lord is over all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for this testimony to faithfulness, uh, to how uh, you bless uh, those who faithfully proclaim uh, your truth to the salvation of many. And Lord, whether we find ourselves in life-threatening conflict or just uh, the loss of, of privilege or the loss of friends or family, Lord, may we be faithful to this gospel that saves and gives us hope and even joy in the midst of life in a difficult world. Bless us as we begin to observe that which you've given to us by which we remember and we recognize the sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.